Hi folks, a shout out this week to Sharon Pask, who did a review of the Take On Board podcast. Thanks, Sharon. She says, gender pay gap episode, very informative session with Emma Ray. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sharon, for taking the time to do a review. We love to get reviews here. And thanks to Emma for doing that episode. Second announcement for this week. This week we're hearing from Kari Hatch. And listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio, on with the show. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast. I'd like to start by acknowledging that I am recording on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and future. I also acknowledge and respect the continuation of cultural, spiritual and educational practice of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, and I extend that respect to any First Nations people we might have here with us today. Being on a board can be an incredibly valuable, interesting and exciting experience. Yet it can also be lonely, challenging and, let's face it, pretty hard. So here at Take On Board, I'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you navigate your way onto a board, onto your next board and to build your governance wisdom. Now, on with the show. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking with Kate Waterford about her experiences of building a skilled and diverse board. First, let me tell you about Kate. Kate is the chair of two organisations, Auscam Freedom Project, an anti-trafficking charity, and Australasian Birth Trauma Association. She's also a board member at Physiotherapy Board of Australia and Coryong Health, and a counsellor of the Australian Institute of Company Directors, ACT Divisional Council. She's also the chair of Amnesty International Australia's Nominations Committee and on the Governance Committee for the Fred Hollows Foundation. Already I don't know how you can keep up with all of what she does and I'm about to tell you what she does for her day job. Katie's also a partner of Canberra law firm Malaganis Edwards Johnson, where she leads a practice in health and medical law and she edits a major legal encyclopedia on medical law. I'm exhausted just listing all of this. So it helps to know that Kate is an eternal optimist when it comes to finding ways to work towards a better world. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Kate. Thank you so much, Helia. Oh my God, it's so awesome to have you here. As background folks, Kate, I think Kate, you just messaged me on LinkedIn one day saying I've been listening to the podcast and it's awesome and we got into a bit of a chat and before you know it, you're part of the Board Accelerator program and before you know it, you're now here as a guest on the podcast. That's absolutely right. In fact, I was on my way to a board meeting down in Victoria, which is about a four-hour drive for me and I quickly Googled on my podcast app, board-related podcasts and listened to you for four hours straight, so became an instant fan. <laughs> Oh, we became friends without me even knowing it, which I love. <laughs> so, Kate, before we talk about building skilled and diverse boards and your experience in that, as always, I love to dig a bit deeper about you. And we'll work with the questions that some might know I've just introduced more recently this year. So, let's start. Where were your mum and dad born? And do you know where your ancestors are from? 
My mum was born in Brisbane and my dad was born on a sheep property in Canamble in northwestern New South Wales. And my ancestors are mainly Scottish, Irish and English. Where were you born and what about siblings? I came from Canberra and I have three sisters, so I often say that's why I have a lifelong love of women's networks and also very good mediation skills because I'm one of the middle siblings, <laughs> second of four girls. Oh, my God, I'm laughing, Riley, because I'm one of three girls and my the middle sibling, I'm the younger sibling, the middle sibling I think probably shares some of your mediation skills. She was Switzerland in our family. <laughs> So for where you grew up, the traditional owners of where you grew up? So I grew up on the lands of the Nyanawal people here in Canberra. And how many languages do you speak? This is one of my favourite questions, but I haven't got a very straight answer. I first started learning languages when I was a 15-year-old exchange student for a year. You would have heard from my answer before that I'm mainly British, so all my family members just speak English. But at 15, I spent a year in Denmark and learnt Danish fluently and I now speak Spanish fluently because my husband's Spanish and that's our main family language. I speak French quite well. My daughter's doing a bilingual French education and I can read a novel in plenty of other languages, Swedish, Norwegian, German, etc. I used to speak pretty good Oriya, which is an Indian language similar to Hindi when I lived in India, but it's almost completely disappeared a decade later. And Because I studied linguistics and just love languages, I've studied the languages wherever I've travelled. I've done short courses in Swahili, Quechua, Thai, currently learning a bit of Basque and more. Oh, my Lord. I love these questions because you just learn so much about people. That is amazing, Kate. I had no idea about that. So I'm one of those people who only speaks English, a tiny smattering of, and I mean tiny, like smattering of Italian and an even tinier smattering of Spanish from travels. You know, you understand culture so much better when you can speak the language of those countries. So that is incredible. Love it. That's absolutely right. In fact, I think it's shaped a lot of who I am and the things that I value as a board member, which Mm. we might get onto a bit more later. But Learning a new language is almost learning about a whole new perspective on the world and a new way of understanding things and breaking ideas apart. You can talk about the same thing in two or three different languages and just find new ways of understanding it. So I just think learning a language is absolutely eye-opening. And so, you know, you've travelled a lot by the sounds of things, but where do you feel your place or your home is? My home is definitely in Canberra and I did have a lot of years of travelling and living all over the place, particularly in my late teens and my 20s. But I came back to my birth palace to roost and in fact I went a step further and ended up buying my childhood home from my parents. So I took over my dad's huge book collection and all of the other things, my mum's garden and my kids are growing up now in my childhood bedroom. So it's very special Oh my goodness. So your home in your home, you're like, you're literally the home you grew up in is now the home your children can grow up in, in your home of Canberra. That's absolutely right. And although we're quite international in some ways, as I said, my husband's Spanish, so we have lots of languages bouncing around the house, but I feel like a true Canberran and uh, absolutely love it here. It's a lovely city to live in. Actually, I'm checking then your kids, how many languages do they speak? So they're growing up trilingual. We speak Spanish at home and they both go to French-speaking schools. What an incredible gift to give them as well. Which for me, having grown up only with English uh, until quite a late age, I think is just an absolute privilege to watch. Oh, 
such a gift. Oh gosh, Kate, I could play in that space for this whole conversation, but I'm going to force myself to also talk about your experience building a skilled and diverse board because I know that's something that people will also get a lot of value from. So let's play there. You know, I know you've had some experience in this through your Amnesty International Australia experience. So building a skilled and diverse board. I guess first for you, what does a skilled and diverse board look like? Well, I think the most important thing about it is that there are people on the board who think differently from each other and have a really different range of experiences that they've been through in life and professional training that they have that they can bring to the table when the board picks apart problems, considers issues, challenges, pushes back on, develops management, because it's those differences between us that actually complement or create our our most effective space for decision-making as a group. I think that actually my love of languages is very closely connected to that because experiences of living myself overseas in places where I was the different one, I was the one who had different experiences, a different language, a different cultural background, led me to understand the benefits in diversity. Often on boards or in other sorts of different professional groups, there can be concentrations of particular skills and experiences which just mean that people echo each other's thoughts or congratulate each other uh, on on the decisions that they think the others are taking rightly, which, which may very well be an effective way of operating in some circumstances. But it's really only when that testing process happens through different perspectives and ideas that the board can be sure that it's making the best quality decisions. I wanted to talk to you in this about my experiences on Amnesty International Australia's board. Amnesty International Australia is one of the boards and organisations I've been most committed to over the years. And everybody who's listening to the podcast, I imagine, will be very familiar with its work. It's an organisation that prioritises and cherishes diversity in all sorts of different ways. But at the time I joined the board, in 2014, it didn't really have diversity in skills and experiences built into its governance structures on the board. I hope to tell you a little bit about how we pulled that apart and changed it and the benefits that we've got from that. Oh my God, it would be great to hear that story because it is, it's often a challenge for board members or chairs it's almost a where shall we begin? Like we know that we need to do something, but where do we start that process? And often it's not a nice, neat, linear process. Let's just do this and then let's do this and ta-da, everything will be perfect. So I would love to hear your story. Where shall we begin? It's not necessarily an experience that every other organisation will want to replicate because diversification will look very different in different settings on boards. Um, but I think it's an interesting story, so I hope you'll agree. So I was first appointed to a board which had a regional representation structure. And I think a lot of organisations do follow this, sort of may sound quite familiar to some of your uh-huh. listeners. But we had 14 people, half of them were representatives from a regional level and half of them were nationally elected. And it was a really great group of people, fantastic friends, talented people, and that regional diversity in particular brought some real strengths. And of course, having 14 people around the table can also have some benefits as well, because just the fact of the numbers of people meant that there were 
often different views and experiences and ideas. But after some analysis, we worked out the structure, although it favoured regional diversity, it didn't have much other diversity. And in particular, Amnesty often attracts a lot of lawyers. And we decided that we needed to pull things about a bit to increase that diversity in a way that worked for our organisation, our values, our membership. Amnesty is a membership organisation and many of its members will have been involved for decades and care about it very deeply and have a lifelong commitment to the organisation. Their volunteering is very much integrated into their lifestyle. So this sort of change was not something that the board could just decide on itself and we had to do quite a, an extended labour of love and consultation before we fixed on a final structure which was very specific to the organisation's needs. And that involved consultation with the membership, consultation with the regional structures, uh, consultation with the Australian Institute of Company Directors, and various other points of engagement with people who were involved in it. Now, these days, 2022 and the last few years, Amnesty has a board that is seven members strong with an additional up to two members on top of that. And everybody's elected at the AGM at a national level. And one of the key changes is that we have a nominations committee and I'm now the chair of that. And it's our job not to choose the directors, but to do really thorough, deep analysis each year about the needs of the board and to recruit and interview and analyse all the different candidates for the board and analyse their life experiences their skills, their leadership attributes, and all the different things that they might bring to the table as a board director. So it's actually ended up increasing almost every type of diversity on the board. It's created a board which has much better skills across a whole range of new areas, and it's brought in new lived experiences and new personal attributes of different kinds. And I think it's really helped the voters and also the board itself to understand more about the skills and the weaknesses of not only those individuals they're choosing between those elections, but also the strengths and weaknesses and gaps of the overall board group. Thinking about this, I realise this amnesty structure and the process isn't for every board, and I certainly haven't copied it myself exactly on any of the other boards I sit on or chair, but I think probably what is relevant for every board is that importance of really pulling apart why the organisation needs diversity and what type of diversity they need and the different types of life experiences on top of professional skills that the board might need and, and how that would be helpful. And then have regular discussions about all those different things that people bring to a table and where the gaps are and explore creative solutions for that. Yeah, it's interesting, I think, hearing that that focus on the why. You know, I imagine for Amnesty International coming from a regional representatives, half the board's regional representatives, half some nationally appointed, through to all being nominated at AGM, you know, I'm guessing there were some interests in that process when that change comes about. And if people aren't clear on the why at the outset, then sometimes those sorts of processes can be dismantled along the way, shall we say, or not successful because there's some different interests at play there. Was that part of the experience there? Can you shed any light for us on that? A really interesting topic, isn't it? Because there's often uh, representatives who sit on boards, representatives of organisations, geographic regions, 
or other people who were there for a particular purpose. And often when organisations move away from a structure like that, there is a loss of some kind and the members or the supporters or whoever else stands behind that representation system, they might be losing something. They might feel that they lose their voice to the board. So I think if an organisation goes through a change like that, it has to look for other ways that it can make people, those people, but all the members and stakeholders more generally, how they can still have that voice through to the board and still feel that they are represented in a different way or addressed or um, heard or, or dealt with in a different way. Absolutely. It's hearing what people have to say and working with that. And the other thing I heard when you were sharing some of that story was there was a quite a extensive consultation process. So I'm assuming through that consultation process, you heard all sorts of different ideas, challenges, opportunities, and then as much as possible, worked with those opportunities and as much as possible overcame those challenges or barriers, I guess. Is there any particular challenges or opportunities that might be useful to share with the Take On Board community? Oh, well, I certainly encourage everyone listening to consider throwing up their hand uh, for nomination to the Amnesty Board. We've just been through an election process now, but so it's it's a year away till the next one, but it's just the most fabulous organisation to be involved in. I do have an opportunity currently available on a different board, the OzCam Freedom Project, which is a terrific anti-trafficking charity, which has quite a different size, purpose, governance structure, but still has a really big commitment to the idea of diversity of skills in that organisation. So uh, if people are interested in in joining an anti-traffic charity that's helping a lot of girls over in Cambodia and has big dreams for other Southeast Asian countries, feel free to look me up on LinkedIn. Oh, awesome. For that one, what are you looking for in particular? I'm going to come back to challenges about skilled and diverse boards in a moment, but for that particular opportunity, what are you what are you looking for? Just so people know whether it's the right thing for them. Sure. Well, one of the things that we're particularly looking for at the moment are fundraising skills, always in hot demand in charities, uh, but also uh, broader leadership skills, life experience potentially of having worked in development, having worked in in a Southeast Asian country or Cambodia, partnership building, we have quite a list. So I just want to skip back to this process with Amnesty International. You were clear on your why, you were clear on what you wanted to look for, you had a big consultation process, you came up with, you know, something that was specific to the organisational needs and you've moved from this 50-50 representative national board of 14 people through to a board of seven. I'm guessing in there there were some challenges that you had to work through to get to that outcome. In as much detail as you're able to share, is there any of those that you're able to outline that might, again, might be helpful to others that are listening that might be going on a similar journey? One of my personal processes involved in becoming, a, I think, a better board member has been actually listening and respecting the voices of others. I think when I first became a, a board director and I was uh coming from a background as a lawyer, I always thought that I had the right answer and it was just about outlining it and convincing people of it and there you go. But of course, I don't always know the right answer and sometimes you get to a much better answer through listening and working things out. So as I said, one of the first things that we did was go to the AICD, the Australian Institute of Company Mm. Directors, and get a fabulous paper, discussion paper, uh, documenting, you know, the 
the best practices in governance structures these days. Uh, we held consultations with members and we also had an incredible workshop that was facilitated by a former podcast guest of yours, Rosalind Noonan, over from Amnesty yeah. International New Zealand, yeah. um, who got people to talk very frankly and openly about these, these different intersecting but, but often challenging needs that they had and, and how we would come together around our values and what we wanted the organisation to do to improve our governance structures and, and change the way that the board operated while not losing too much of that, yeah. uh, that activist voice, that member voice directly through to the board. We came up with a fantastic idea, I think, uh, out of that workshop, which was something called a big activism forum. We're alongside the AGM sometimes at different times of the year, there's a big forum held around human rights issues where ideas and, and causes that people might previously have discussed with their local regional representative who lived in the next suburb to them and went along to all the same local committee meetings, they can now bring up at an activist forum, an activism forum, and have dealt with in different ways. So it's changed a little bit how certain issues are dealt with by the board and I think made the board overall a lot more effective. But it took a couple of years. It wasn't just one stakeholder event and the solution was arrived at. It was a couple of years of working through discussions and understanding people's needs, understanding where people might have been resistant to change. Well, they don't just resist change for no reason. It's because they see benefits in in certain aspects of the status quo or we'll want to make sure that change happens in the right way for the right reasons and that the organisation remains at its core, the thing it's supposed to be. So I think yeah. we got there in the end, but yes, it was uh, it was a couple of years of, of hard work around those all those different issues and I think probably large influential organisations like Amnesty would, would probably take a couple of years to, to make change of that kind. Absolutely. Like a couple of years, I think, is by the sounds of things. Like it's done well, I think. Change is always a consultation process and consultation takes time. As you say, it's not just, oh, let's get everyone together. Oh, what do you think? Oh, great. Now let's go that way. There is back and forth and back and forth and thinking and pondering and pivoting ideas as well. Like I'm guessing along the way, like the why was clear, but the what might have changed along the way, as it should in a good two-way process, three-way, four-way, ten-way process. <laughs> if I can perhaps use quite a, an example of quite a different organisation uh, that has different diversity needs, but it might illustrate as well a bit of that point around amnesty. You mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that I'm the chair of the Australasian Birth Trauma Association, and that is a not-for-profit that's focusing on preventing birth trauma and also supporting families who've been through birth trauma and encouraging better healing. When we look at the sorts of life experiences and skills that you might want on a board like that, you get to 20, 30 different people <laughs> and you'd almost never run out. So, you know, you'd want an obstetrician, a midwife, maybe a nurse, maybe a physiotherapist, all these different clinical skills. You might want somebody who has experience in public health or hospital management you go through all the, the usual professional skills like lawyers, accountants, people who are good at fundraising, marketing, etc. And you also might consider it very important, we do consider it very important to have good consumer and community representation. Does that mean you have someone who's suffered 
every type of birth trauma because there are mm. many kinds. You know, the different types of, of child loss, who's recovered well, who's recovered badly. How many of these different life experiences do you actually capture? And mm. each time that you limit that, because you have to limit it, my board can have 20 or 30 or 40 people, you're making choices about which of those different life experiences are most important to have represented and heard on the board. And often if organisations have particular types of representation or particular skills carved out to come to the board, it necessarily means the exclusion of others. Yeah. And so I think that's why you have to interrogate quite regularly well, if we've got this type of diversity prioritised, does it mean that we're actually losing out in terms of the other? Mm -hmm. Amnesty had someone from every state in Australia, which was fantastic geographic representation, which gives a lot. But we were working on refugee issues without a refugee on the board, or we were working on Indigenous issues with minimal Indigenous representation on the board. And so even with 14 people, there were all sorts of things that you could say that we really hadn't included in our diversity yeah. back then. I think they're both excellent examples of just reminding us that with those opportunities around whatever it may be, but in this instance, diversity does come loss and being clear on that why, as you said before, and what it means. You know, if we stick with model A, it means we are losing out on these things. And if we move, we can pick up these things even if we lose those out. So how do we create a model that can still hear voices that may not be in the boardroom, some of the regional voices, for example, that don't need to be in the boardroom but are still heard by the board. It's a great example. As you know, I'm on a hospital board as well and one of the great things is being able to hear the consumer, inverted commas, patient voice, consumer voice, whatever different health services call their people that use their services or are involved in their services because it might not even be directly, it could be families as well. And having those voices included in a really meaningful way. You know, on our board, we have a called the Consumer Advisory Committee or is it Community Advisory Committee, one or the other. Uh, but we've also incorporated into some of the other committees the consumer voice as well and even on some interview panels as well. So there are other ways of incorporating that. Great examples, both of them. Sometimes doing that skills matrix process at a board level helps you to say, okay, well, we're not going to be able to have that on the board, but let's work out the other ways that we have available to us to hear those voices and to build it into board decision-making. Absolutely. And on government boards, for those that are involved in government boards, often you actually don't have a choice about who is in the boardroom. So being able to include those voices in different ways is even more important because you, you, you just don't control who's... You influence but don't control who's on the bo in the boardroom. <laughs> Oh, Kate, both of those stories, so valuable, I think, in terms of your own experience and just being able to share that, the Take On Board community. So what are the main points you want people to take away from the conversation that we've had today? Interrogate what your board is doing with respect to the structures and processes for, for composition of the board. Look for creative ideas. And all boards, whatever their size, should really be doing regular review of their skills, their attributes, their life experiences, what they need and what they have to ensure that they're engaging in good governance. I also made the point that it does take different forms in every organisation, but boards should really be thinking about the ways that they can mix up their thinking to challenge ideas better 
and create a better quality of decision making on the board in a way that works for them and their organisation and their values. Absolutely. Yeah, I loved how you referred to it. It it needs to be a tailored approach. It's not, diversity is not the same for each organisation. So I love that. Is there a resource you would like to share with the Take On Board community? So you asked me this and I didn't immediately have my own TED Talk or book or anything else to promote. Um, But I did want to share my last two books that I read that I just loved so much in the hope that some of your other podcast listeners would too. My latest favourite books from Indigenous authors Sand Talk, Can Indigenous Thinking Save the World by Tyson Junker-Porter. It's a few years old now, I think, but it is one of those books that I just read, put post-it notes everywhere, you know, asterisks everywhere to come back and just really challenge my way of thinking about the way that, that we think. And also mm-hmm. My Titter, My Sister by Anita Heiss, who has written a fantastic book about Indigenous women's experiences and uh, the ways that that they can support each other, and also the ways that they that they need support and, and encouragement and and championing. I was so impressed by that book, and I was delighted to hear you uh, mention that she had received an Order of Australia uh, a couple yeah. of days ago. I think that's very well deserved. Absolutely, yes. I, I can't remember which level she got, but I think it was one of the higher ones and absolutely well-deserved. Thanks so much for recommending those books. I'm going to get on BorrowBox as soon as I'm off this to see if I can find them either in written or in the audio form, which I love listening to books on audio. So they are both fantastic. Thank you. Oh, Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, In fact, thank you for reaching out and just sending me a message saying that you'd spent four hours in the car with me. Being such an open and helpful member of the Take On Board community from that first message and, of course, for joining us here today on the Take On Board podcast. Thank you so much, Helia. It's been an absolute pleasure to uh, to meet with you today. And uh, I never imagined when I had those four hours in the car listening to podcast after podcast of your fabulous guests um, that I would so soon myself be appearing. <laughs> well, there you go, folks. If you're in the car or even not in the car listening to the podcast, feel free to reach out to me because I really love getting messages from people and you never know, you might be the next guest on Take On Board as well. Um, Again, Kate, thanks for being awesome. I don't know how you fit it all in. I'm exhausted just reading your bio, but thanks so much for being with us today and for, as I say, being such an active, helpful member of the Take On Board community. So that's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. Thank you so much for being here and being part of the Take On Board community. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So I invite you to join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group, an active group that helps, supports and cheer squads each other. Just search Take On Board in Facebook to find us. I'd really love it if you could also do some of the other podcast things. Share with someone you know who might get some value from our discussions. Subscribe if you haven't already. And... Well, I also really love it when people rate and review. Thanks again for being part of the Take On Board community. Now go and put these tips, tricks and advice into action so you can be your best in the boardroom.